You know that part when you begin learning something new and it's actually worse? Of course, you're not yet good at whatever you're learning, but unlike before you started, now there's a ton of evidence about how tough it really is. When you're in that place yourself, or perhaps supporting someone else who is, this episode will help. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 576. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. As leaders, so many of us care so deeply, certainly about our own growth, and also, of course, about the growth of the people we have the privilege to work with each day. I am so excited for our conversation today because it's with an expert on growth of helping us to really look at what we can do from a leadership perspective, not only for, our, for ourselves, of course, but for others, on how we can really help others to begin smart growth. I'm so pleased to introduce Whitney Johnson to you. She is the CEO of the tech-enabled talent development company, Disruption Advisor an Inc. 5000 fastest growing company in America. As one of the top 10 business thinkers in the world, as named by Thinkers 50, Whitney is an expert at smart growth leadership. She has worked at Fortune 100 companies and is an award-winning equity analyst on Wall Street. Whitney co-founded the Disruptive Innovation Fund with the late Clayton Christensen. She has coached alongside Marshall Goldsmith, selected by him in 2017 as a top 15 coach out of a pool of more than 17,000 candidates. She is the author of Disrupt Yourself and host of the podcast of the same name. She is also the author of the new book, Smart Growth, How to Grow Your People to Grow Your Company. Whitney, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Dave, thank you for having me. I loved reading the book, and I can't wait to get into the details of it. And one of the things that really struck me as I read through it is that smart growth just starts slow, <laughs> doesn't it? And I, I love the analogy that you have in the book of telling the story about learning to ride a bike as an analogy for learning. It, it really is the path that so many of us follow, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I tell the story of, of a friend, but it's an experience that we've all had, which is where um, her husband was teaching his son to ride a bike and they would go out every evening after he'd gotten home from work and go out and was struggling and couldn't balance and trying to figure out how to get his hands on the handlebar and struggling, struggling, struggling. And he couldn't. And then all of a sudden, one day after three weeks, he could. And I think that happens so often when it comes to growth is we think we can't, or it looks like we can't, and then all of a sudden, we can. Yeah, and visually, we see the change externally when it happens, like all of a sudden, the child is riding the bike successfully, and yet the real work is that three weeks <laughs> that was put in that without any one of those points wouldn't have actually led to the external piece. And it really reminds me of a quote you have in the book from Thomas Fuller, all things are difficult before they are easy, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh. it's so true. And I think what's so important about that story, and you're really highlighting this, is that we honor that process when we're young, but somehow we forget about it as we get older. And the more 
mature we get, the more we go through life, the more we can insulate ourselves from doing anything new. And so that muscle of being willing to be in this place of slow gets very flaccid. And so I'm glad that you're highlighting the importance of being in the place of slow until it becomes fast. Yeah, this is going to be, I think, a really good reminder for me and I hope for everyone else on just the reality of the growth process. And and if we can embrace that a bit, <laughs> if we do a better job of moving through that process. And you articulate the S-curve in the book. And in fact, the book is really built around that. And And I'm wondering if you could paint a picture of what the S-curve is and and how it maps from from a growth standpoint. Sure. So some of your listeners are going to be familiar with the S-curve, the growth curve. And this is something that has been around for 60, 70 years. It was popularized by Everett Rogers, a sociologist, to look at how over time an idea or an innovation is adopted. And he originally did it from the standpoint of corn. He was looking at this brand new hybrid corn in Iowa, in the United States, and found that it was it had a higher yield of 20%. It was drought resistant. It was easier to harvest. And yet people were very slow to adopt this new hybrid corn. It took three years to go from zero to 10% of adoption. So, so the base of the S, if you will. But then after year three and 10% of the people had adopted that, that new type of corn, penetration or adoption went from 10% to 40% over the next three years. And so he he stip, or postulated that ideas and groups change in the shape of an S. So there's the base of that S where the growth is slow until you reach a tipping point or the knee of the curve and you move into hypergrowth until you reach the top of that S curve where you where you reach saturation. So that's that's the idea of he looked at it as how do um, groups change over time. Well, for me, the big aha came when I was working with Clayton Christensen and investing alongside him. And we were using the S-curve to look at innovations, how quickly they would be adopted to, to think through how this could help us make good investment decisions. And I had the insight that we could also use the S-curve to help us think about how we learn and uh, how we grow. And so that that's the genesis of it. Yeah. It, it's really such a... when I was reading through the book and thinking about the S-curve and also thinking about my own learning and growth, it really struck me as just so germane to so many of the experiences we have. And I, I thought in particular, like us looking at that first part, um, what you call the launch point, the, mm-hmm. the stage of being an explorer and then a collector is really key because it's the part of the curve that it's like that you were mentioning with that like 10% adoption on the, the corn. It's the part of the curve where things tend to look very slow from an external result standpoint. And yet there's a ton happening. And my mm-hmm. sense is, is if we're willing to acknowledge that and embrace that, that there's a whole bunch that we can do that actually helps us to support our own growth, but growth of others faster. And one of the invitations you make is to do a bit of an audit of mm. your adult self and get a, and get reacquainted with your childlike self. And um, you write in the book, your mindset shapes your future, but it's influenced by the ghosts of your past. And I'm wondering if you could share a bit about like what 
what are those ghosts and what's important about exploring those? Yeah. So, so as you mentioned, um, at the launch point, the growth is actually happening quite quickly if you look at it mathematically, but it's not yet apparent. Um, so there's a lot that's mapping in your, your neurons in your brain. But when you think about at the launch point and you're trying to figure out, is this a curve that I want to be on? Is this something that I actually want to commit to? You're initially doing an exploratory process and you say, yeah, this is in line with my values. I think it's hard, but not too hard. And so you do all that initial work. But then once you um, say, yeah, I think I want to be here, you now have to figure out, I know I want to be here, but can I get the resources that I need in order to actually be successful here? So if you think about yourself within an ecosystem, can I get the sunlight? Can I get can I get the the water? Can I get the you know all the the nutrients and resources that I need? And so one of the things I talk about as you're collecting resources, and I compare this to lily pads in a pond, is to say to yourself, okay, among the other resources, one of the most important resources is what's going on inside of my head. As you said earlier, with with a child learning to ride a bike, they may not it not may not be obvious, but there's a lot that's going on inside of their head. And so this idea of of the um, auditing your adult self is you ask yourself, what suppositions do I have? What beliefs do I have about myself and about the world that can help me grow, that can help me be successful here? And what ideas and beliefs do I have that are going to hinder my progress? Uh, So let me give you a couple of examples. Sure. So first example and her idea comes from Tara Sport, who's a, a British neuroscientist. And she suggests that you ask some questions such as, what role did I play in my family's social order? Was hmm. I the responsible one? Was I the go-between? Was I the rebel? Um, and am I still playing that role? And for what I want to do right now on this S-curve, does that role help me or hinder me? Another thing that she suggests we ask is what are some of our overriding beliefs that can potentially help or hurt you? And I'll give you a couple of examples from my own life. So I found that um, one of my children, I have two, we have two children, said to me, mom, you say I have to a lot. Huh. And children, by the way, when you're trying to figure out what some of those, as you're auditing your adult self, your children can be very helpful in this regard (laughs) because what they can do is they see your underbelly. They see you at your weakest point, but also of all the people in the world, they want you to succeed more than anyone else. Uh, And so children are important truth tellers and important at helping you do this audit of your adult self. And so she said, you say, I have to a lot. And what was interesting about that is I could be getting ready to talk to a person that I really want to talk to. I could be ready, getting ready to go on a vacation to a place that I really want to go to. And yet those words, I have to still come out of my mouth. Well, what does that mean? Potentially means that I grew up in a household that we didn't believe that we had a lot of autonomy. We, didn't, we weren't necessarily in control of our life, the master of our fate. And when we have those words, I have to, there's this victim mentality that as you're thinking about what you want to get done and how you want to act and not be acted upon in your life, that I have to tick almost, if you will, can really hinder your growth. 
Now there's another one that I think is, is more positive is that whenever my husband or my daughter make food, which they do frequently, because I don't cook very much other than, than cookies, yeah. I will frequently say, I love this. I love this. This is so delicious. I really like this food. And so one of the things that that does is that there is an exuberance to my approach. It makes it so that they are very excited about cooking some more because I appreciate it. And so that's another belief that I have of, of excitement and awe of, of food that I'm about to eat. And so that's actually going to help me move up curves because I get excited and enthusiastic about things that people do and new opportunities, et cetera. Huh. Wow. Thank you for, for sharing those. And I, my senses in listening to those questions you've asked yourself and thinking about it, that a lot of folks, when beginning something new, like we get caught up in the, okay, here's the things I need to do. And here's the, maybe the, uh, the podcast or book I'm going to listen to, or that practice I'm going to start. And yet we don't think to begin here of doing a little bit of an audit of like what's between our two ears. Right. And mm-hmm. I, I'm curious in your experience coaching folks, is there a question or an invitation or something that you find is helpful as a starting point to begin to get people thinking about that internal piece of starting to ask a few of these questions? Mm. Yeah. So whenever I am coaching someone, one of the very first things that we do is I ask them to tell me stories about their life. I ask them to tell me about formative moments. I ask them to tell me about crucible moments. So formative early in their life, crucible moments, something that's happened in their adult life. I ask them to tell me about things that they're most proud of. I ask them to tell me about some events that they're they're perhaps they consider to be a failure. And as we do that, I'm able to really start to get a sense of the experiences that they've had, what's shaped them, how they're thinking about life, how they're making meaning, how they're processing, et cetera. And one of the things, um, Dave, that's especially interesting for me as I have those conversations is not infrequently, people will accidentally say something that turns out to be really interesting, but they didn't tell me about it because they felt embarrassed about it. And let me give you a specific example. Oh, sure. I, I was having a conversation with um, a professional colleague and he was telling me about his accomplishments in life, which are many. But at one point later on, he accidentally let it slip. He had never disclosed any of this. He later on said to me, oh, and by the way, when I was in high school, I was a top 20 tennis player in the country of the United States. Huh. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> you never told me that you were a top player in the United States when you were in high school? And then he said to me, no. And I said, why did you not tell me that? He said, because I felt embarrassed. And I'm like, why did you feel embarrassed? He said, because I was embarrassed and I was ashamed that I wasn't successful as a tennis player, I didn't, be, I didn't go pro. Uh, and I thought, isn't that interesting? And I said yeah. to him, oh, it's the shame. It's always the shame. Here he had done something so impressive. It tells you all sorts of things about his discipline, his drive, what he's interested in doing, but he didn't disclose it because he felt like he should have done something else. 
And so that was very revealing for me. And, and so that's, that's a ghost of your, your past. That's something that's going to hinder you where you had this tremendous accomplishment and all sorts of skills that were developed around that, that are going to serve you well in your professional life. But because you feel some piece of embarrassment or shame around it, you, you put it in the closet and don't glean all of the value that comes from that in moving forward and, and moving along an S curve. And most of us have something like that in our past where we didn't accomplish what we thought we should have accomplished or ought to have accomplished. Things didn't look how we wanted them to look. And so we don't want to talk about it. That's a ghost that we need to pull that out because there's a lot there that can actually serve us. One of the other invitations you make is to pay attention and cultivate a childlike curiosity and wonder. And one of the tactics you used, and I know you've invited others to do, is uh, the power of thinking about images and collecting mm. images. And, and what is it about images that's so helpful? I love this. So this is, again, building on neuroscience and also the work of Tara Swart is that the reason images are powerful, there, there are three in particular that I'll mention. The first is that when you select images, you're doing some curation, you know, this image, not that image. So you're starting to say, okay, I like this image. I don't like that image. And so there's an immediate focus that's starting to take place. The second reason that images are so powerful is that they bypass the conscious mind. Our brain does not filter them. It does not easily dismiss them. So that means that images are, they're very powerful for good and for ill. But in this particular instance, what we're talking about is if there's something that you want to accomplish or achieve, if you show yourself an image of something. So, so as you're thinking about this new S curve and new thing that you want to do is you start to choose images, you're collecting images that you like or are responding to, you're collecting data. Then if you look at that image frequently, so even if it's like, looking at an image of me right now, I want to improve my tennis game. So I'll watch even one minute of tennis a day. Um, and what that's doing is that's priming my brain to say, oh, this is how a tennis serve looks. This is how a tennis stroke looks. And so instead of my conscious mind trying to edit it or say, I can do this or I can't do this, it's going straight to my subconscious mind. My subconscious mind is registering that and say, this is how you serve so that it will start to build that, that, that pattern for my brain so that my body will then know what to do. And then the third thing it does is it harnesses your selective attention, meaning your brain, our brains are filtering all the time. And when you start to have an image of something that you're trying to, to do, so I'll, I'll continue the tennis example, then my brain says, okay, tennis is important to her brain. Um, and so if you are, you know, looking, flipping through the computer and you see Wimbledon, for example, your brain says, oh, pay attention to that. And maybe I'll go mm. spend two minutes and watch how someone, you know, just served the ball, for example. And so again, it's collecting data points. You're harnessing your selective attention to get all of these data points in your brain, like the little boy on the bicycle, putting all those pieces together. It's not yet apparent, but you're collecting data that says, hey, brain, you can do this. You can figure it out. And again, eventually you will. 
the invitation here is so powerful to uh, what I'm hearing you say, tell me if I'm wrong, is part of this is like the thing itself, right? Like the practice, the starting the behavior. But part of it is also just putting your mind in a place where you start to notice and think and see the images. And I, as you were saying that, I was thinking about I'm working on um, becoming a better guitar player right now. And one of the things I've done is started watching guitar players on YouTube. And mm-hmm. sometimes I use it as an excuse <laughs> for not practicing. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, well, I'll at least watch someone else play guitar, even if I'm not doing it myself. But now I'm thinking like, wow, that's actually not a bad tactic no. in just like staying present with it, even if I didn't practice that day or, or a few days, like just getting getting another input that's not just the behavior, but starting to put myself in the environment through images of noticing, seeing, thinking about it, staying present in my brain. That's that's huge. It is huge because it is giving input into your brain and you're watching it, you're listening to it, you're absorbing it. If you're only practicing by yourself, you're not going to learn as fast. And so So yeah, you do want to practice, but if you every day commit to do something related to the guitar over time, your brain is going to say, I'm a guitarist. Like that's what I do. And you're, and that is going to help you build momentum along that S curve. And, and those small little data points, especially when you're at the launch point, there's so much value in establishing streaks, right? So if you say to yourself, I want to improve in the guitar and you make a commitment, I'm going to do something guitar related every single day. Some days it's playing, mm. some days it's, it's listening what or watching it. You're, you're telling your brain, this is important to me, pay attention to it. And over time, your identity is going to shift to someone who is in fact a guitarist. Oh, it's such it's such a great way of looking at it holistically, and 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 also getting past those times when maybe like okay, I'm, this one thing, this particular piece of it isn't working for me today, but I can still mm-hmm. engage in it in a way that's meaningful, and that it really comes to the the word collector, which shows up so much in your research, and and especially this part of the the curve, mm-hmm. oh, absolutely huge. Uh, I. I, I, I want to ask you, too, about just language. There's a really beautiful part of this chapter on using I am statements. And you invite us to, rather than think about using a verb, which is what we often do, and instead think about mm-hmm. using a noun. Uh, tell me a bit about that. Yeah, this is so interesting to me. So there's research done by Gregory Walton, um, who looked at the difference between saying, I vote versus I am a voter. And he found that when you describe yourself with a noun, there was an 11 percentage point increase in voter turnout. So when people started focusing on their identity, I am a voter versus I vote, they were more likely to vote. And so that was very interesting to me from an academic perspective. But what made it even more interesting is that for anybody who is familiar with the the Christian tradition, that Jesus used the words, I am, and they literally, that is his name and it's used to create. And so there is tremendous creative power in those words. And so when you can find yourself willing to start to say, I am something, I am a runner, I am a voter, I am a podcaster. You're starting to make that transition from this explorer phase of, I I wonder if I want to do this to, I actually do want to do this. This is in sync with my identity. I'm doing the work to become this. 
then you've shifted into that place where it can become who you are. And I, I will say, um, if you anybody who's listening wants to do an experiment, use those words "I am" and use them to say something really negative, like "I am dumb," hmm. and then "I am smart." And when you say that word, the negative thing about yourself, or you hear someone that you care about or that you love say those words, really attune yourself to it, and you will find over time that it actually physically pains you to hear a person talk about themselves in a negative way. And what that reminds you is just how powerful those words are. And so as you're thinking about collecting this data of something that you want to do or to be, remember to invoke these words of I am as a way to you for you, you know, I don't ride bikes. I am a biker, mm. although that probably doesn't sound very good. I am a cyclist, <laughs> but use those words to help you create the you that you want to create. We had James Clear on the show a few years ago, and uh, he makes a similar invitation in his Atomic Habits book on taking on an identity versus just thinking about you know checking a box on something. And so I've been for the last few years. We've adopted a bit of that when our academy members begin work with us of thinking about phrasing their commitments as identities of rather than uh, I- I'm going to do a better job of facilitating meetings of phrasing it as. I facilitate meetings well. And mm-hmm. the the interesting thing is in thinking about this for myself and also watching our members to to process that over the last few years is is it it's powerful and also it's really hard to write or to say it when you don't yet feel like it's you. And I'm I'm yeah. wondering like if you've uncovered anything that's been helpful for you or for others to like be able to write it down or to say it out loud, even when it it really doesn't feel like you yet. Yeah, mm. I I love that. Even when you said I facilitate meetings well, like you it, you can feel the shift in in the energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have a couple of thoughts there. There was so Bob Proctor and some of your listeners may be familiar with him. He was basically Tony Robbins, the generation previously, if you will, of just getting people to think about human potential and and the importance of using your words to create um, the future that you want. And one, one story that I think has been really potent for me as I think about this is a fellow by the name of, of Marcus Whitney. Actually, before I tell the story, let me let me back up here's what's going on in our brain is our subconscious mind does not know the difference between fact and fiction. It doesn't know the difference. Hmm. So we have all sorts of programming that came from when we were sort of zero to four and five that is all subconscious and all wiring. And some of it's true and some of it is not true, but our subconscious mind doesn't know the difference. It, it, it literally does not know the difference. And so we can use our conscious mind, our executive functioning skills to reprogram, to rewrite what is going on in our subconscious mind. And so part of the way I think about this is what do you believe can be true? So you don't need to believe it now, but do you believe that you can believe that it's true? Ah. And if that is the case, then you can start saying it because you're now knowing, okay, I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm reprogramming my subconscious mind to believe something that I believe can be true and should be true. And so it allows you to 
to sort of intellectually bypass that, but you know, at the same time, you're just basically saying it over so many times it becomes true because if you, if your subconscious starts to believe it's true, it makes it true. And think about this. We've all done this. We all have, have had situations where we think, oh, this is going to be a bad situation. That negotiation, it's not going to go yeah. well. And we say that over and over and over again. And guess what? <laughs> the negotiation didn't yeah, we go create well. a reality, right? Big surprise, yeah. big surprise. And so the story that I was going to tell you is a fellow by the name of Marcus Whitney. He was, he'd gone to college at University of Virginia in the United States. He had dropped out because um, he disguised, discovered he liked rap and weed more. <laughs> um, and now is 23, 24 years old. He's got one child, another one on the way, living, you know, week to week, waiting tables, 12 hours a day. And he's like, this is not working. I got to do something different. He, when he was a young kid, 10 years old, his, his uncle Otis um, had worked at IBM, given him a, a, a computer. And so he'd learned a little bit of programming. He thought, you know, I think, I think maybe I can learn to program. So he's waiting tables 12 hours a day, six days a week, and then spending four or five hours a night learning to program. Well, he said what was important for him in order for this to be possible, he says, there wasn't a lot of evidence that this was a possibility for me. He's waiting tables. He's an African-American male. People are not going to look at him and be like, yeah, you're a computer programmer, like if they're casting it. So he said what was very important for him, in fact, it was he is to not say to himself, I am becoming a programmer. He said, I am a programmer. And he said, I don't have to believe that I was a good programmer. Or, or even not great, even good, just I am a programmer. And he said those three words, that fundamental shift made it so that he could believe that it was true and then it became true. And he eventually um, became a developer for Emma Email Marketing. And now he is a co-owner of the Nashville soccer, professional soccer team and is an investor and a venture capital investor. Wow. But it all started with that shift and how he was talking about himself and identifying himself. Oh, it's huge. Thank you so much for all these examples, the framework. Uh, there's, there's just so much here in thinking about how we can do a better job from a leadership standpoint of supporting others as they go through the growth journey and just some of these key questions and and uh, and, and mindsets. It's going to be so helpful to folks. So I hope that uh, folks will uh, take my invitation to uh, find out more about Whitney's book and to dive in on the rest of the of the S curve. I mean, we're really only talking about one of the six parts of the curve. So if you found this helpful, I think the book will be really useful to you as well, too. Whitney, before I let you go, um, you've had such success in your firm. Uh, you've written two incredible books. You have a really popular podcast. As you reflect on the last few years, what's something you've changed your mind on? I would say I'm going to go with something that I've thought about just the last couple of days that is an interesting thing for me. So we have two children. Um, we have a son who's 25 and a daughter who's 21. And my daughter is really a lovely human being and very kind and frequently doesn't sometimes gives me feedback. As I, I mentioned earlier, she's the one who said, you say I have to. So it's not like she never does. Mm -hmm. But I found that she's not necessarily giving me as much feedback or being as direct with me about our interactions as probably is what's going on inside of her head. And we've had some conversations recently where when she's direct with me, I, I say to her, thank you for being so direct. And so here's, here's the thing I've changed my mind about. If people 
are not giving us feedback, if people are not being direct with us about the experience that we're having, that means not that all is well. It means that they're not giving us feedback. And there is something in either for them or probably more likely for us that we are not open, that I am not open enough to feedback. Because if I'm open to feedback, then they will be willing to give me that feedback, especially if they love me and are invested in me. And so the thing I've changed in my mind about is, am I getting feedback? And if I'm not, what do I need to do? How do I need to change so that people feel like they can give me that feedback? Because I need that feedback. I need to collect that feedback if I want to grow faster. Do you know what that thing is yet that you might change? Or is it still something you're holding on in the thought process? Um, so I have, a, I have a half an answer. I think that sometimes people worry that they're going to hurt your feelings. And so, so the other night, this is a little bit random, but we'll see where it goes. So the other night we're watching, um, we're watching television and we're watching Korean dramas because we really like Korean dramas. And I had said to a friend, yeah, we watched about an hour a day. My daughter was like, we don't watch an hour a day. We watch an hour and a half a day, or maybe sometimes two hours a day. And I found myself getting really defensive about it. And I think it's because I felt like, well, I work really hard. I should take time to take a break kind of thing. And then that I said, I said I was having that experience, but then we had this interaction around this of like, but why do you feel that way? And wouldn't it be better if you just reframe that as we're doing something that we enjoy together? And isn't that a good thing? And so being able to call out that I was getting defensive, but also being able to talk through it. And by saying that to me, I was able to reframe and say, actually, I've now had this insight about myself that I think it's not okay to take a break. And if I'm telling everybody that I coach that they need to take a break, maybe I need to take a break as well. And if I can reframe that to, I am doing this to recharge, I am doing this because it's a way to connect with my family. And oh, by the way, I can poke fun at myself a little bit that I like watching Korean dramas, then that makes me human as well. And so it was just that interaction and that skirmishing and being open to that conversation that made me say, okay, this is good. And oh, by the way, if my daughter's willing to say that to me, then that means we have a better relationship, not a worse relationship. Whitney Johnson is the author of Smart Growth, How to Grow Your People to Grow Your Company. Whitney, thank you so much for your stories and also for your work. Thank you, Dave. If this conversation was helpful for you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 376, How to Become the Person You Want to Be. James Clear and his best-selling book, Atomic Habits, were featured on that episode. We talked about the distinction between just setting a goal and taking on a new identity. That's one of the big invitations that James makes in Atomic Habits of really thinking about things of who it is that we're becoming. Episode 376, a great compliment to this conversation. I'd also recommend my episode with John Maxwell, episode 452, How to Motivate Leaders. In that conversation, John and I talked about the distinction between motivation in general and motivating leaders. And one of the lines from that episode is from him that followers want security, 
leaders want opportunity. And of course, with opportunity comes growth, very much in alignment with this conversation. When we're running into new growth opportunities, that's a great place for us to be as leaders. It's also a good place for us to be in supporting others in their leadership development, episode 452 for all of that. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 550, how to win the long game when the short term seems bleak. Dory Clark was my guest on that episode. She's appeared several times over the years on the show. We talked about the reality that oftentimes the short term is difficult and seems challenging. And yet, what are the practices that we can utilize in order to really benefit in the long term? And of course, one of the points that she makes in that conversation is that often if we're taking on something new, a new practice in our careers, building a new skill set, heading a different direction, often it takes two to three years of sustained focus in order to really see measurable results. Episode 550 for a lot more details there. All of those episodes, of course, you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't yet, I'm inviting you to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. It's going to give you access to a whole bunch of things. One of them is the ability to search by topic all of the past episodes that we've aired since 2011. In addition, there's a ton of other benefits inside the free membership. One of them is the free audio course. I have aired a number of audio courses over the years and made them available inside the free membership on a number of topics. One of the audio courses is called How to Get Traction. I walk you through step-by-step exactly how to take on something new, how to make a commitment for it. We use a very similar process in our academy conversations around a 90-day commitment. Some of the details you can find in that audio course on how to get traction. There's five lessons in there. It's one of the key benefits of free membership. You can get access to that, the searchable library by topic, and of course, all the other benefits of free membership just by going over to coachingforleaders.com, setting up your free membership, and you will be off and running with us in accessing everything there inside of the membership. Next week, I'm glad to welcome David Novak to the show. We are going to be talking about the path towards joy in your career. Join me for that conversation with David, and I'll see you back next Monday. Take care.